This is the podcast for God's Honest Truth. These are stories that are told by members of First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Each time we get together, we have a theme, and the members of our church tell stories based around that theme. I hope you enjoy. Well, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you to the God's Honest Truth. This is our storytelling evening that we do once a quarter. We've had two of these before, and uh, they've been very well attended, and I'm so glad to see that so many people have come out for this one. Following our program tonight, there will be a little reception out here in the narthex so that you can talk to our storytellers and and, uh, have some time to speak to them if you so choose. But here's the thing that I always say when we begin one of these story nights, just so that you kind of understand the rules of engagement when we have a story, which is that these stories come from the heart, and whatever you feel moved to do, whether it be clap, cry, to smile, to feel joy, whatever it is you feel, that's okay here. Okay, it's not church, all right, in the normal way, right, where you are worried about what you're going to do. This is whatever you feel, let it come out, and that's totally fine. Um, Tonight, our theme is it's the little things in life, stories about small things that made all the difference. And each of the people who are coming up here, this story resonated with them in some way, and uh, they wanted to come tell a story. One little side note that I think you should know is that even though this wasn't planned, uh, Gordon Palmer, Jan Nehemiah, Don Hartung, and Jane Wellman they were all part of a Bible study here back in 1963. Um, and they all came to me separately when they did this, but they are all connected in that way back early in this church. And so I think it's really neat that all four of them have come here and they're going to be telling their story tonight. So our first story tonight comes from Gordon Palmer, Little Things, Big Difference. If you would, welcome him to the stage. Good evening. This small piece of porcelain of a boy and his dog is my first little thing that made a big difference in my life. The inscription in Swedish is Kanduintatala, which roughly means, can't you talk to me? This originally, excuse me, originally belonged to my grandfather, Gustav Johansson, born in 1869. He was the third of seven brothers. And the reason that's particularly important is that at that time, only, uh, only the eldest son received any inheritance. The rest were on their own. Now, in this, in this town of Gustafsburg, the only jobs available to young men were in the town's only industry, the porcelain factory. So my grandfather and one of his brothers decided we're leaving. And they emigrated to America, settling in a Swedish neighborhood in the Lakeview area on Chicago's north side. There were a great many Johnsons, Carlsons, you name it. All these Swedes were there which caused some confusion, mail delivery and and other identifications, so that these two brothers decided to change their name. But to what? Well, since they were here, excuse me, they, they were walking down in the loop one day, and they decided to pray about it. And they lifted up their hands, and when their eyes came up, they were right under the marquee of a large, prominent Chicago hotel, the Palmer House. You guessed it. How obvious. How obvious. <laughs> so they took the name Palmer. This, this settled their quest, and it made a big difference, certainly, in my life. Now, fast forward. September 1945. 
I entered Lakeview High School in Chicago. And when I went there, I wanted to learn a band instrument, preferably the clarinet. However, now my name was Palmer, not Johnson, Johansson. And so as they were distributing in instruments, they called us according to alphabetical order. And by the time they got to P, no more clarinets, only a trombone. That's, that's really a scientific way of picking a, a musical instrument that's going to be a part of your life forever. But really, I'm much better, much better suited to the trombone. Uh, you know, sometimes, a lot of times, players and, and instruments just seem to fit each other. I also welcome an instrument, unlike the clarinet, I loved having an instrument that didn't have all these fast fingerings. I probably couldn't keep up. I may have, may have been a mediocre clarinetist, but that would be at best. I liked the trombone. Trombone were always heard. Whenever you play, you're heard. You get a solo once in a while. And if you ever play in marching band, you're in the front row. So there were a lot of advantages to this. So I lasted about a, about a year in this beginning band at Lakeview High School with just over a hundred beginners in the same room. You can imagine what it must have sounded like. It had, had to be bad. One day, a friend of mine, Milt, who had played tuba for a number of, number of years, was giving me a few tips on how best to play trombone when I was marching. It's, it's a technique. It really is. <clears throat> During our little conversation, <clears throat> he invited me to join an out-of-school group called the, United, the Chicagoland Youth for Christ Band. Now, <clears throat> this band, I had only played for a year, and I was afraid I wouldn't measure up because the band mainly had older, more experienced people in it. And here I was this one year. But Milt urged me to try it anyway and assured me he could get me into the band, mainly because his dad was the conductor. <laughs> so that's how I slipped into this high-end group. Now I'm seated alongside some of the best young players in all Chicagoland area. And certainly I, f I felt like a very small fish in a big pond. But fortunately, <clears throat> Uh, many of these other musicians were willing to give me a great deal of help with my playing and other things. I was even invited to be a, the fourth member of a brass quartet. The other three were quite experienced. I'm this one-year one trombonist in there. Uh, but I was, I was challenged from, from all of these to, to do better, and my playing in, improved quickly. The Youth for Christ Band very soon became a major part of my life, taking up each and every Saturday with rehearsals all day long and a meeting, or they were called rallies, on Saturday night. The directors of the band became my mentors, not only musically, but spiritually, and this was a big thing. I found that if I wanted to follow and obey and serve Jesus, there was a lot more to it than just going to a weekly Sunday school class. So my talk with Milt had a big, really changed my life during my high school years. During this time, my high school band director was very influential also. He constantly encouraged, challenged me musically, put me in the school orchestra as well as the band, ensembles, even got me to play solos, and was just a, a big influence on me. Early in my senior year in high school, this band director called me aside for a little talk and asked me, what are your post-high school plans? Well, <laughs> my post-high school plans had not been thought of yet. <laughs> But he suggested that maybe with my interest in music, my rapid pr progress, that maybe I should consider a career 
in music education. By the following spring, <clears throat> excuse me, I had successfully passed an audition and was admitted to the School of Music, University of Illinois. Now this was such a major change, it affected me my whole life right to this day. <clears throat> While still at the University of Illinois, one fall, a choir director friend of mine asked me to fill in for him for a number, for a number of weeks in his church choir. This is a small request, a small choir, a small church, the first time I ever directed a church choir. It was really eye-opening. It was wonderful. Along with this, one, eve one day, a young music school soprano came, came along and she joined the choir. So I thought, as obviously as choir director, I better become acquainted with new people. <laughs> so I invited her out to what became a coffee and hot chocolate date, because even though she was Swedish, she didn't drink coffee. Too bad. Too bad. Well, these little coffee and hot chocolate dates grew and grew and grew, and a year and a half later, Viv and I were married. Now, after over 61 years of marriage, we still have coffee and hot chocolate dates. <laughs> And Viv is one of the very few Swedes that I know that doesn't drink coffee, still. <clears throat> you know, a friend of mine told me once, when you pray, coincidences happen. When I look back on some of these little things, coincidences, some of them, I look back and think, where was I going? Were these really coincidences? I think not. God's leading and guidance through many, many little things in my life that made a big difference proves that he does lead us if we allow him to. Thank you. I'm sorry, I should add, and thank you. <laughs> you can look at it later if you'd like. All right. I want to welcome to the stage Jan Niemeyer. Come on up. I did not fall down. <laughs> I ended up deciding that what we'd call this is be who you are. I wasn't really listening to Alex, I guess, and I got all excited about a sermon a few weeks back and thought, wow, I could really relate to that. So I didn't pay attention to the tiny things. But Alex found one in what I had to say. And uh, he also pointed out that maybe not everybody here knows me. I find that amazing. <laughs> but I forgive you. Uh, Don and I are a partnership, not quite as long as Vivian Gordon, but 58 years is pretty good. And Don, my husband, has been a member of this church or a part of this church since he was born 82 years ago. And I got here a little later. I was 16, no, 15 when I got here. And uh, five years later, I married him right here on these steps. I want to tell you a little bit about Donald. He, he studied accounting, and he's always been a numbers guy, but uh, he spent his work career in computing. And his final 
couple of decades of work. He was a systems analyst. And as I thought about that, I realized that that tells you something about who Don is. Because he has got an amazing brain that God gave him that he could see systems. He could see, he would analyze stuff and figure out what needed to be done, how to do it, a way forward. And, uh, and, and that pretty much describes him, a guy with a great brain. And uh, I have a brain, but it operates <laughs> a little differently. Whereas he's straight line and he figures stuff out, I'm kind of circuitous and all over the map. Uh, I eventually get someplace, but I visit a lot of different things on the way. I asked Alex if he had a hook in case I overstep. He said no, but he'd stand up if I got too long. <clears throat> but here's the thing. God bringing me to this church was my wonderful family, Vic and Ollie Davenport. Uh, brought me to a place where I was going to get an education that beats all. Because every step of my life, whether it was in youth group or everything, all the Koinonia group, covenant group, classes, has led to my Presbyterian women. My education has opened God's word for me. And this is what really excites me. I love it that what Jesus had to say the first time he's recorded to have preached is that God sent him to bring good news to the poor, that God is always about working things out, making things right, that God's really interested in that. And when you look around, there's an awful lot that's wrong. Generation after generation, we do lousy things to each other. But it's so good to know that God's plan is to work it all out. And we get to be a part of that. So I spent the first two decades of our married life, we had these two marvelous children who are still with us. One is here tonight. And, uh, and a wonderful life living in this town and living in uh, this church and getting to do the things that really God called me to do. But somewhere along the line where Philip and Karen, our children, were getting college age, Don thought, you know, it really wouldn't hurt if you got a job, <laughs> earned a little something. You know. And that's pretty much what he got out of me. It was a very little something because I never got a very good paying job. But I did get a job in a secretarial service over in Des Plaines. And uh, being me, I'd probably still be doing that. But the real reality was that I was very uncomfortable with it. To be in that office complex day after day, I mean, there were nice people, it was a good job, but I wasn't involved in anything, like the nuclear freeze campaign or the Palestinian human rights or human rights for Southeast Asians or whatever was inciting me. I, I couldn't be doing that stuff while I was working. But I kept going. And then one day, and this is my little thing that Alex found, Don said to me, and as I recall, it was just one time, he said, why don't you go to seminary? That's what you really want to do. Seminary? Become a Presbyterian minister? And by the way, we've learned that almost, I think every one of us tonight is related in some way or is a Presbyterian minister. That's another tie for this group. But that's what he said. Become, go to seminary. Well, I don't know whether that means a whole lot to everyone here. But to me, that was like reaching for the stars. Really? How could I do that? A, I hadn't finished college. I wanted to marry Donald. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't see how I could do it. But my buddy... He could see how to do it. He found a way for me to finish my undergraduate degree, go to McCormick, and this church helped too. And then when I finished at seminary, I got the most amazing call from God and Bud Ogle to go to Good News Partners in Rogers Park and be a chaplain at the Jonquil Hotel, 
which is a single room occupancy hotel for people that are otherwise likely to be, have no place to live. It's about 60 rooms and jammed with people. When I was there, we had over 23 kids living in the hotel. And families live in these tiny rooms. It was a really big change of life for me to live in a hotel, meet my first roach. <laughs> I didn't know what that was, climbing up and down the walls. I, what is, is that a decoration? No, 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 no. Those are bugs. Uh, city living for a suburban girl. But it was so wonderful because there I was, right in the crux between where people are most in need and where people have what they need and can come together in partnership. That's what the good news partnership is all about. And lo and behold, there we were getting to be good news bringers. And I got to do that for almost 10 years. It was a dream call, let me tell you. I loved every minute of it. Wouldn't have left that either, except I was kind of, well, conditions of living in poverty are not good for your health, and my lungs went. And I couldn't stop coughing, so I feared God wanted me to shut up and go home. Well, I did, and our lives have continued to be beautiful. But we've had one more glitch. I'm not sure how many seconds I got left here. But 10 years ago, our daughter and son and other people, and even I, began to notice some changes in my beloved Donald, my wonderful guy who has this amazing brain. And he just didn't seem to be with us. And finally, Karen said to me, Mom, you got to do something. I thought it was me. I thought I must not be paying enough attention to him. I wasn't home enough. I, I started being more home and going to worship with him and instead of being off pastoring someplace else. But no, it wasn't something that was going to go away. It was Alzheimer's. And I don't know whether you know much about it, but you probably should learn because it's an epidemic. Many, many people are now suffering and more and more all the time. And it's one of those diseases that they haven't figured out what causes it or how to make it stop. And what it does is begin to just kill off brain cells, these ones right over your ears first, so that you don't know what just happened. You were there, but it was like you were shut off and you didn't hear it. So you need to be told again and again and again. That's kind of early on. And other things happen as life goes on. Changes happen. Here's the best news. My beloved Donald is still here. He's here tonight. He loves coming to church supper. I'm so grateful to God and to all the helpers that we have and our kids and this church that make it possible that he can come and be here in his church and be a part. It's different, and sometimes it's downright scary. But you know what? We're never alone. Jesus is right there with us. And boy, howdy, can I holler out for help. <laughs> I can say, Jesus, this is very scary, and I don't know what to do. I think I may say that at least once a day. But every time, God comes through. And there we are, Donald and I, still in love. I'm in love with him, and he says, when I say to him, Don, I love you, sometimes he says, good. <laughs> and I say, well, it's good for me. And sometimes he says, I love you too, and we're grateful for the love that we share and for God's beautiful love in our lives. Amen, and thank you. All right, so thank you so much, Jane.
So next up, we have Tina Finch. She's gonna come up and do her story, The Water Slide. Welcome her to the stage, please. Hello. Uh, is this high enough? Okay. Um, I want to just start out by saying that uh, I have a, an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old, two girls. And, um, but when I wrote this story, they were actually 10 and 6, so I may forget their ages at some point during the story. <laughs> because I actually wrote it a year ago uh, after a conversation. Um, and it was my first blog post. Uh, it's my first and only blog post, actually, <laughs> at this point. Um, but you know, who knows, maybe I'll blog about this tomorrow. Uh, but uh, I had, it was the end of the summer, maybe school had just started, and I was uh, with a group of friends, and we were kind of commiserating and telling stories of survival. Because we had all survived the three-month-long summer with our kids. <laughs> um, it is three months, 12 weeks of painstakingly planning playdates and camps and trips and the inevitable, dealing with the inevitable, mom, I'm bored, I don't know what to do. So. After we were done moaning and groaning about that, one of my friends suggested that we all share a memory that was our favorite memory of summer, which I thought was a neat idea. Um, and I instantly thought of something, but I didn't think that that could be it because it didn't it seemed like a little thing, really. It wasn't our big beach vacation, and it wasn't date night with my husband, which almost never happens. Um, it was a trip to Mystic Waters Aquatic Center. Um, ever since we moved here nine years ago, you know, at some point we drove through Des Plaines and passed the Mystic Waters Aquatic Center. And I thought, wow, that place looks neat. We should go there sometime. We should take the kids. Uh, but, you know, they were still little, and I didn't know how overwhelming it would be with a couple of little ones. I did know that we would have to go as a family. My husband would have to be there. Um, because in our family, my husband, you know, we have roles that we play, right? And he is the guy that does most of the kind of gross stuff. And he's the one that takes kids to things like frontier days or down roller coasters, things like that. He's the one that gets in the water at the pool, okay? It's not that I don't like the water, but, you know, I've got to put the swim skirt on and, you know, the whole thing. So uh, I knew that he would have to go, and I had put it on our summer bucket list. And... All of a sudden, it was the end of the summer, and I, I realized we only had, based on everything else that was going on, one Saturday left to do this. So I told my husband, look, this Saturday, it's been on the calendar, we have to do this. 12 to 4, Mystic Waters Aquatic Center, it's happening. I watched him process this because he knew that he would be the one diving and doing all of those things. And I would be the one who packed a bag with everything anyone could possibly need ever. And I would take a lot of pictures. So Friday came. Oh, and it's important to mention, I don't tell my kids what's on the bucket list because that's dangerous. Because then if you don't feel like doing it, you know, you're roped in at that point. So I didn't tell them. Uh, so then that Friday, my husband looked at his calendar and realized that he had a school event. He's a principal, and he had something he had to be at on that Saturday and was not going to be able to go. I was bummed, but I looked at the forecast and realized that it looked like rain anyway, so, you know, it just wasn't meant to be. 
Saturday came and off he went to work and the kids and I hung out, the girls were playing and it was raining. But around noon, I noticed that the rain had stopped. And at that point, I also realized that my older daughter had been on a device for way too long. And my younger daughter was asking to watch another episode of Paw Patrol. So I thought about it. I looked out the window, and it was a beautiful, sunny, blue sky summer day. So I took a deep breath and thought to myself, can I do this? Kids, get in the car. We're going somewhere. They didn't want to go, actually. They were like, I don't really want to go, you know. So, but I said, no, look, this is going to be fun. I promise you this is going to be fun. So we arrive at the aquatic center and the kids were ecstatic because the first thing that they see is a huge bona fide water slide, double water slide. They can each go down at the same time, really quite big. And then I was relieved to find that it really was an aquatic center and not a water park. There was a lazy river and a pool and a diving pool, kind of manageable for me, right? And I started to realize that I think they can do this by themselves. And I can just sit and take pictures. So they played, they headed straight for the water slide. And they went down over and over again. I watched them climb and be at the top of the slide and waited with bated breath to see them emerge. And they did and came up smiling and laughing and happy. After a while, they moved on and did some other activities. But then they came back to the water slide. I'm like, okay. I had just texted my husband, hey, I took the kids to the water park. I was triumphant at this point. And my older daughter looks at me with a look on her face that I've seen before. Mom, you're going down the water slide. No, no, I'm not. I'm actually not doing that, Louisa, no. Yes, you are. Yes, you are going down. Come on, mom, please, please, come on. And she gave me the puppy dog face. My little one at this point is now jumping up and down. Mommy's going down the water slide. So I had not even considered this. This was not an option. Only moments before, I had seen a mom go down the water slide, and it was not pretty. <laughs> so I started to panic a little. My blood pressure went through the roof. At this point, my daughters are grabbing my arms and dragging me forcibly to the stairs of the slide. People are beginning to stare. Uh, so I said, okay, 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 I will walk up and look at it. That is all I'm promising. <laughs> so we walk up to the top of the slide, and there is no line. And Luis goes, come on, Mom, get in this one. This one's the best one. Get in this one. I looked at the lifeguard, and I said, they're forcing me to do this. <laughs> and she had no pity for me. She laughed. I knew that I had no choice because my daughter was not going to let up. So I sat down and I could feel the water rushing over my legs. I had not been down a water slide in 25 years. I let go and started down the slide. Before I knew it, I was slipping and sliding all over the place and in total darkness. I was thinking to myself, how could I have let my six-year-old do this? Uh, so all of a sudden I realized that I can hear maniacal screaming laughter that the whole park has to be able to hear, and it's coming from me. <laughs> I see the... Uh, the sunshine basically at the bottom of the tunnel and realized that it's about to end. 
and I prepare myself. I take a deep breath, and I plunge into the water. I had seen that other woman struggle, so I really got prepared to stand up and look like it was all good. Uh, I walked to the edge of the pool, and the smile on my face was still there. I was beaming, and my kids were jumping up and down, overjoyed that they had seen this occur. But from that moment, I was changed. I was not the same person that came into the park that day. I grabbed my kids and said, let's jump in the water and play. We did. We played in the water for a couple of hours, it seemed. And my 10-year-old at the time, she kind of was as, it was as if she was a toddler again. I was swinging her around and playing silly, silly games. And I felt like a burden had been lifted off of my shoulders. It was a self-imposed burden, but it was there. And I can't help but think, as uh, was mentioned before, I am a pastor's daughter. So by osmosis, I sometimes think of the symbolism in things and uh, couldn't help but liken it to baptism. I had gone into the water. A mom who had taken her kids to an aquatic center, but I came out of the water a mom who was with her kids at the aquatic center. Oh, shoot. <laughs> you guys are supposed to cry, not me. Anyway. Uh, I was so thankful that I'd had the opportunity to have that memory uh, based on my friend's question. And, um, you know, we don't get to choose the memories that our kids have. We can make memories, but we can't really make memories. We can only try. So I hope that my kids remember the day that they forced their mom down a water slide <laughs> and saw her come up laughing. Thank you. All right, next up. I want to invite up Emily Monroe. She's going to tell you her story, The Campfire. Alex kind of named this campfire. There's a connection with those of us that are blabbering up here today. I am the granddaughter of a Presbyterian minister. I grew up in Minneapolis and I went to Westminster Presbyterian Church. And I was a Girl Scout, and the Scout uh, troop met at the church. But the best thing ever was the church owns a camp, Camp Adjua. That's a real word, a real place. And I first went there when I was seven. And when I was a Girl Scout, I sold enough Girl Scout cookies that for several years I got a free week of camp that absolutely delighted my mother. <laughs> but I went there first as a camper, and then as a scout, and then as a counselor, and later I went there with my husband and our three girls. Now, when you go to camp, there's a campfire. And this one was pretty big. It was big enough that all the campers there and the staff could sit around it. And during the daytime, we would meet at the campfire. There wasn't a fire then, but we would meet and discuss whatever we needed to talk about that day. But at night, there'd be a campfire, and we'd all sit around it and we'd sing. And as we'd sing, and that fire was going, the embers would just float up into the night sky, and there were no lights around it, so the only light was the campfire. And it just felt magical. When I was in high school, Westminster sent me to a leadership camp in Michigan. And there were girls there from every state and a few other countries. And at night, all these girls from all these different places 
we got together around a campfire and we sang, and it was such fun. Well, I was part of a youth group at Westminster, and I had finished my sophomore year at the University of Minnesota, only we never called it University of Minnesota. It was just called the U. So we decided we would go up to Ottawa. Now, obviously, I'm from Minnesota. So when you say you're going up to someplace, it means you're going north. When I go visit my brother, I'm going up to see my brother in Minnesota. When he comes to see me, he's going down to see me. So we talk in ups and downs. Well, we went up there, and I rode up with one of the guys in the group, and I was 19. He'd had four years in the Navy and had a semester left at McAllister College. That night, all of us were sitting around the campfire singing, and I noticed he wasn't there. Hmm. And then I noticed one of the gals who was a PE teacher wasn't there. And I didn't know why I didn't like that. But I didn't like that. And after a while, he came back alone. He had gone to his car to get his jacket for me. About a year later, we were married. That was John Monroe. So, but the year before that, I'd had quite an experience at another camp. And it was at this camp that I learned for me a very big lesson that would serve me the rest of my life. I was charged with working with the older Girl Scouts. And the, we had our own little campsite away from the littler kids. And we had a campfire, and there were two Y supports and a big pole that would hold the pans and stuff they'd cook with. Well, the first few days of camp, we had meals in the lodge. And the girls decided that the food was boring and nasty, and that they could do a lot better over an open fire. Okay, so they did. They cooked uh, beef stew. They cooked chicken. They cooked fish. One day, they dug out underneath the fire pit and wrapped up a ham. I wish I could remember what we wrapped it up in. Buried that ham. And then they built a fire on top of it, and it was the most delicious baked ham ever. My favorite camp food, I thought, was a piece of toast, very simple. Toast a piece of bread, turn it over, put some brown sugar on it, and some sliced oranges. I thought it was heaven. I went home and did it in the oven. Not good. <laughs> Not good. Well, after the girls had had a meal, they had to clean it up. So they'd wash the dishes and put them in a net bag. And this would go in a big iron pot. And this would go on a pole over the fire. And after it had boiled, they would lift this pole off over by a tree, and they'd volley to see who got to lift those dishes up into a tree. It was tied to a rope. Well, one morning, the girls were doing that. And as the girls lifted that boiling water out, <laughs> you know it's coming. The girl in front fell, boiling water all over her feet. Got her shoes off, socks off. I went for the camp nurse. I wish I could remember her name. She was short, about to my shoulder, kind of heavy. And we're walking just normal, normal speed. And I'm annoyed. And I said to her, hurry, she's burned. Now here it comes. She said, I am the nurse. If I run, I will alarm all who see me. 
and we do not need curiosity seekers. If I run, I will be out of breath, and I will not be able to help that girl. If I run, I will scare her. Then she said, almost never, almost never does one or two minutes make a difference. Being calm and in control does. That has served me well. At some time, we went to Milwaukee to visit my brother, another brother. And his three-year-old came in. She'd been playing with her older brother, skinny, skinned her knee. And she was crying and fussing. And I looked at my sister-in-law. She was doing this, wringing her hands. Oh, what do we do? What do we do? And I looked at her and I thought, you're the mom. You're the grown-up. Really? Being calm and in control helped me with our three daughters. Colds, flu, stitches, surgery, allergies, you name it, it hit our doorstep. But it also helped me to cope when we had very serious illnesses, when my husband had cancer, when my son-in-law died of cancer, and other very serious illnesses. For me to show them that I was frightened or anxious did not help them. It didn't help them, but being calm did. And I would save the scary stuff for private times. The last time we went to Ajua, we took our three girls for a family weekend. And we sat around that same campfire. They toasted marshmallows, made s'mores. Our girls got sticky. And we sang songs. And the embers from that fire just floated up into the sky, and it was just like magic. It was so special. Thank you. All right. How's everybody doing so far? Good? All right, we got two more to go. This is Don Hartung. He's going to be telling his story a warm Saturday night. It was a warm Saturday night in mid June, 1948. I had graduated from high school in January and was working until September when I was going to start Northwestern. I was walking up to the corner drugstore with two of my friends, Bill and Bob, to get some ice cream. As we were walking, Bill turned to me and said, Don, I have a real problem. Dorothy, Dorothy was his steady date. Dorothy had asked me to find a date for a friend of hers. And Bill was going, or Bob was going to go, but something came up, and now he can't. Can you take his place? Well, dating had not been a major activity of mine in high school. <laughs> if I had taken the time to count that night the number of dates that I had been on, I could have done it on the fingers of one hand and had fingers left over. So I was not particularly anxious to do this. We talked about it some more. Well, there were reasons. There were reasons why I had so few dates. First of all, I was shy. Secondly, I had a size problem. 
When I graduated, or when I went into high school, I was four feet, nine inches tall, and weighed a whopping 98 pounds. There were 14 girls in my grade school graduating class, and there was only one who was shorter than I was. Now, of course, I did grow, and by the time I was a senior in high school, I had shot up to five foot eight or nine and had bulked out to 128 pounds. <laughs> Another problem that I had was I had no access to a car. My parents never owned a car, and I did not learn how to drive until I was in the Army which is a whole nother story. <laughs> a fourth reason was that I grew up in a Baptist church, and I did not, was not able to find my way around a dance floor without the help of a camp compass. <laughs> now, I've been a Presbyterian for almost 60 years, but I still can't dance because my feet have remained Baptists. <laughs> so, so we discussed the situation some more. At one point, Bob said to me, come on, Don, it's only a blind date. You don't ever have to see that girl again. <laughs> well, I knew Bill was in the real pickle because after all, he was asking me for help. But Bill was one of my best friends, so finally, reluctantly, I said, okay. That Friday, June 18th, I went to Bill's house. Bill and I went over to Dorothy's house, and I saw my date for the first time. When she came into the room, I knew right away that she had two things going for her, at least two things. One she was good-looking, and two, she wasn't taller than I was. <laughs> so the four of us went to a movie. We saw Unconquered, starring Gary Cooper. Some of you old folks may remember that movie. And maybe at this time, some of you, or maybe all of you, are ahead of me because I did see that girl again. I asked Lois for her phone number. It was Irving 3184. <laughs> and Tuesday night, I called her. She must have liked the movie because she agreed to a second date. <laughs> and so Saturday night, I was at her front door. That date on June 18th started a relationship that has lasted more than 69 years. Now, the first five years were taken up with my being in college. So the first three years, we dated. The last two years, we were engaged. Probably one of the highlights during our dating period, at least one of the highlights for me, was our ninth date, because that's when I kissed Lois for the first time. I told you I was shy. You know. And when I proposed to Lois with a wonderful forecast for the future for me, I said, since I'm going to be a chemical engineer, someday, I will probably make more than $10,000 a year. So after five years, I graduated. Five days later, Lois and I were married, and we've been married now for more than 64 years. This is sort of like a one gamesmanship thing, you know, like who can be married for the most years? <laughs> I think, I think Lois and I may have won. <laughs> but as I get older, 
I often look back at some of the other occasions in my life when I had to make decisions, and I've often wondered, what would my life have been like if I had said yes instead of no, or no instead of yes? But on that warm Saturday night in June, I did not say no. I said okay. And I've never regretted that okay. Thank you. All right. Come on up, Jane. We have one last story for you tonight. Jane Wellman. And uh, I want you to know that Jane was actually the first person to come up to me to say that I have a story, but she said, only, only if you don't get anybody else to do it. And I said, Jane, I need your help. <laughs> Welcome, Jane, to the studio. So this will not be a bedtime story, but I will start with Once Upon a Time. Many years ago, Bob and I were married right down at the bottom of these steps by my father, another connection. Our first house was in a little apartment upstairs of a house on South Arlington Heights Road where the Dunkin' Donuts is now. After several months, I got the flu. It lasted a little longer than I wanted, and so I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, Jane, you don't have the flu, you have morning sickness. <laughs> to which I said to him, morning, noon, and night sickness. The morning sickness lasted three months, at which time I hardly ate a thing, not even the green and orange jello that my mother and my mother-in-law brought to the door every time they visited. Bob and I were excited. When the morning sickness was over, my appetite came back, and I ate everything in sight. <laughs> and so I gained weight. Our beautiful, healthy baby boy was born, but the weight didn't magically disappear. We bought and moved into our first house. It was at least twice as big as our apartment. It had a huge lawn, and we were happy and getting settled. And one day, Bob came home, and he said, I have been asked to go on a training program for the company. This was exciting news. And then he said, it will be nights, it will start next week, and it will last for six months. Yeah, I, that's how I felt. <laughs> so my diet really mirrored that of my toddler, not anything that any dietitian would approve of and it lasted for over a year. Bob went on days. Things were good. We were sort of in a schedule. And then he came home and he said, the company is really growing and I've been offered another job. This was exciting. And then he said, there'll be a bit of traveling. The bit of traveling was Sunday night to Friday night, about three weeks out of a month. Now, I have been asked, because my eating habits were horrible, I have been asked if I ate out of loneliness. And thinking back, I don't think so. I was keeping a house. I was chasing a toddler. I was active in this church. My parents and my in-laws were wonderful and supportive. And best of all, I lived in a neighborhood where most of the husbands traveled and the wives were home with their kids. And so we bonded, and we would go to Barnaby's for pizza, the same one that's on Rand Road to this day. We would go to Barnaby's for pizza twice, twice a month, and then we would sort of pool our food and eat at somebody's house so that we would get over that horrible dinner hour. So I think when I think back, it was not loneliness that caused my bad habits. It was laziness. I had a toddler. I wanted to make something that he would eat so that our dinner hour 
was calm and cool and collected, and I didn't have to say, I've sugared the carrots, now eat them. Yes, you've had green beans before. Chew one piece of meat at a time, and no, we're not going to have dessert before your plate is clean. The one thing that bothered me during all this is that I never ate great, huge portions of food. I never ate a dozen rolls at a time. I never ate a loaf of bread or a gallon of ice cream. That bothered me. About this, oh, morning, noon, and night sickness. This time I did not gain weight, and when our beautiful daughter was born, I didn't lose any of the weight. So here I was, still carrying around extra pounds. At the same time, my dad became very ill and was in the hospital for a month. He recuperated, but my mother had a nervous breakdown. What happened to my eating plans, I have no idea. I don't remember any of that time, other than I visited her in the hospital by myself, I visited her in the hospital with my dad, and I stayed with her when she couldn't stay alone. It was a stressful time. All of these things that I've told you happened in the first six years of our marriage. Bob continued to travel for four years, and I continued eating very poorly. And then things changed. Bob was offered a job. It would require a move. We discussed it with our parents because both of our mothers were not well at all. And we had their blessing, and so we sold our house, we packed up our stuff, and off we went to Indianapolis, Indiana. Things were different. Bob was home all the time. Now I was not making stuff for the kids and me to eat. I was making dinner every night for our family. Paul was in fourth grade, Jenny went to kindergarten, and I was home. I would take her to school sometimes, and then I would stop at the store, and they were making donuts at the bakery. A lot of times I could walk by and never stop, but then there were those times when I would go back and I would say, I'll just have one, maybe two. I went to a kindergarten meeting at school, and I saw this dark-haired girl across the room. I went to a circle meeting at church, and there was the same dark-haired girl across the room. This time, we kind of smiled at one another. Bob and I joined the choir. There was that dark-haired girl sitting in the soprano section, and I was an alto. But we did meet, and we became fast friends. And Frankie and I did a lot of things together. And we did things as couples, and we did things with the church social group. One day in December, Bob and I picked her up for choir. And on the way, I heard her say, I think I'm going to go to Weight Watchers after the first of the year. Do you want to go? No, I heard myself say in my head. I don't want to go. I don't want to discuss my eating habits. I don't want to listen to anybody else. No, and it would never work. But I said to myself, how can you say that when you have had an invite from a friend, when you're carrying all this extra weight around, and when your husband's sitting there in the car? So I said, yeah, I'll go with you. Wasn't going to work. Frankie and I joined Weight Watchers after the first of the year. She had 17 pounds to lose, and I had a lot more. For the next several months, we attended meetings together. We walked together every morning after the kids went to school. We cooked together. We planned menus together. We shopped together. We made ketchup together. This was when Weight Watchers first started, and there were no products in the store. So if you wanted it, you made it. We ate liver together, because we didn't like the liver, and if we ate it at lunch, it was only four ounces. <laughs> in September, we both reached our goal. Frankie lost her 17 pounds, and I lost 72 pounds. We celebrated. I celebrated two things. I celebrated my weight loss, and I celebrated the invitation 
to join Weight Watchers from a very dear friend. As you can see, I have kept the weight off all of these years, and I marvel that that simple, simple invitation from a dear friend has changed my life. Thank you. Give it up one more time for all of our speakers tonight, our storytellers. As you can see, this is a very special evening. It takes a lot of guts to get up here and do this. It's not easy. And uh, after this, if you have time, if you want to talk to them, they'll be out here for a reception. Uh, and I hope that you will take a little time to talk to them about their stories. The next one coming up is going to be in February. So it's going to be February 21st. And our theme for that evening is Welcome to the Real World, Stories of Growing Up and seeing things differently. So if that's a story that resonates with you, maybe you should think about coming up here and telling yours. I hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.